This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of myelodysplasia, including myelomeningocele and spina bifida, from the pediatric section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Myelodysplasia is a common group of congenital disorders caused by various chromosomal abnormalities that lead to the failure of closure of the fetal spinal cord and present with anatomic anomalies and neurological impairment of varying degrees. Diagnosis can be made in utero with fetal ultrasound. Treatment involves a multidisciplinary approach to address neurological, genitourinary, and orthopedic manifestations. Now, let's get into the episode. As far as the epidemiology, there's a 0.1 to 0.2% incidence of myelodysplasia. Risk factors include folate deficiency, and keep in mind that supplementation can decrease the risk by 70%. Other risk factors include maternal hyperthermia, maternal diabetes, and valproic acid. With respect to the genetics of myelodysplasia, up to 10% of fetuses have a chromosomal abnormality, specifically trisomy 13, trisomy 18, triploidy, and various single-gene mutations. Associated orthopedic manifestations include pathologic fractures, spine deformities like scoliosis and or kyphosis, hip dysplasia, specifically hip dislocations or contractures, knee deformities like tibial torsion or contractures, and foot deformities. Neurosurgical manifestations include a type 2 Arnold Chiari malformation, which is the most commonly associated congenital abnormality, hydrocephalus, which has a 70% incidence, and or a tethered cord. Urological manifestations include a neurologic bladder. A special consideration to mention include IgE-mediated latex allergy, which results in profound anaphylaxis and is present in 20-70% to of patients with this disorder. The classification of myelodysplasia is basically divided into the forms of myelodysplasia, which include spina bifida occulta, meningocele, myelomeningocele, and rachiscosis. Spina bifida occulta is a defect in the vertebral arch with a confined cord and meninges. A meningocele is a protruding sac without neural elements. A myelomeningocele is a protruding sac with neural elements. Rachiscosis is when neural elements are exposed with no covering. The functional level in myelodysplasia is described by the lowest functioning level. So the function in patients with an L2 myelodysplasia is non-ambulatory. L3 is characterized as a marginal household ambulator with a high risk of hip dislocation. Primary motion includes hip flexion and hip adduction, and the primary muscles involved include the iliopsoas, which is innervated by the lumbar plexus and the femoral nerve, as well as the hip adductors, which is innervated by the obturator nerve. An L4 myelodysplasia is characterized as a household ambulator plus, this is a key level because the quadriceps can function. The primary motion includes knee extension as well as ankle dorsiflexion and inversion. The primary muscles include the quadriceps, which are innervated by the femoral nerve, and the tibialis anterior, which is innervated by the deep perineal nerve. An L5 myelodysplasia is characterized as a community ambulator. Primary motion includes toe dorsiflexion, hip extension, and hip abduction. The primary muscles include the EHL, which is innervated by the deep perineal nerve, the extensor digitorum longus, which is also innervated by the deep perineal nerve, and the gluteus medius and minimus, which is innervated by the superior gluteal nerve. An S1 myelodysplasia is characterized as a normal ambulator. The primary motion is foot plantar flexion, and the primary muscles is the gastroxoleus, which is innervated by the tibial nerve. 
An S2 myelodysplasia is also a normal ambulator. The primary motion is toe plantar flexion, and the primary muscles include the flexor hallucis longus, which is innervated by the tibial nerve. An S3-4 myelodysplasia is also characterized as a normal ambulator, and the primary motion is bowel and bladder function. With respect to imaging, radiographs can be useful for monitoring, specifically in the setting of scoliosis-slash-kyphosis, hip dysplasia, and or pathologic fractures. An MRI is indicated when there's a change in the neurologic exam, which prompts urgent MRI to rule out cord tethering. Laboratory studies to obtain include alpha-fetoprotein, which is elevated in 75% of children with open spina bifida. You should obtain this during the second trimester. Again, laboratory studies to obtain include an alpha-fetoprotein level, which is elevated in 75% of children with open spina bifida, and you should obtain this during the second trimester. Pathologic fractures in the setting of myelodysplasia include fractures of the long bones, which are common due to osteopenia. The frequency increases with the higher the level of the defect. Pathologic fractures are common in the hip and the knee in children ages 3 to 7 years of age. Fractures are often confused with infection, osteomyelitis, or cellulitis. Treatment should include a short period of immobilization in a well-padded splint. This is indicated for fractures that are in satisfactory alignment. The technique, again, should involve a well-padded cast, and you should avoid long-term casting, as this may lead to osteopenia or repeat fractures. Scoliosis in the setting of myelodysplasia may result from muscle imbalance that is neurogenic or congenital malformation, for example, a hemivertebrae, which is defined as a curve greater than 20 degrees. Remember that the higher the functional level, the greater the incidence of scoliosis. So there is a 100% scoliosis rate with defects in thoracic levels. Again, there is a 100% scoliosis rate with defects in the thoracic levels. Consider cord tethering in rapidly progressing deformities. Treatment of scoliosis can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes bracing, however, this is not effective. Operative options include an anterior spinal fusion and a posterior spinal fusion with pelvic fixation. This is indicated for a progressive curve and is indicated in most situations as bracing is not effective. As far as the technique, anterior fusion is required due to the dysplastic posterior elements that may impair posterior fusion. Complications include a high pseudoarthrosis rate and a high incidence of infection in 15 to 25% of cases. This is due to the poor soft tissue coverage of the posterior spine. Congenital kyphosis in the setting of myelodysplasia is present in 10 to 15% of patients with myelodysplasia. This is usually congenital and progressive. On physical exam, you may notice a gibbous deformity that may cause recurrent skin breakdown due to the pressure points when sitting. Again, a gibbous deformity may cause recurrent skin breakdown due to the pressure points when sitting. Treatment of congenital kyphosis in the setting of myelodysplasia is operative, specifically a kyphectomy with fusion and posterior instrumentation. This is indicated for progressive deformity. As far as the technique, make sure to check shunt function prior to kyphectomy. Shunt failure during surgery may result in death. With respect to hip disorders in the setting of myelodysplasia, Hip dislocation is most common at the L3 level due to unopposed hip flexion and adduction. Hip flexion comes from L1 and L2. Hip adduction comes from L2 and L3. Hip abduction comes from L4 and L5. And hip extension comes from L5 and S1. Treatment of hip dislocation can be non-operative or operative. Indications for non-operative management includes all levels of myelodysplasia, and the technique involves close observation. 
As far as operative indications, surgical treatment of dislocated hips is controversial in patients with myelodysplasia. Another hip disorder that can be seen in myelodysplasia includes hip abduction contracture, which can cause pelvic obliquity and scoliosis. The treatment is proximal division of the fascia lata and distal iliotibial band release, otherwise known as the Ober-Yount procedure. This is indicated when contractures interfere with sitting or bracing. Hip flexion contracture is another hip disorder that can be seen in myelodysplasia. This is common in high lumbar or thoracic defects. Treatment involves an anterior hip release with tenotomy of the iliopsoas, sartorius, rectus femoris, and tensor fascia lata. This is indicated for contractures that are greater than 40 degrees. Knee disorders in the setting of a myelodysplasia include weak quadriceps, flexion contracture, extension contracture, and tibial rotational deformities or torsion. A weak quadriceps is a common condition affecting children with myelodysplasia. The treatment is a CAFO or a knee ankle foot orthotic. Flexion contracture is not as important to treat in wheelchair-bound patients. However, the treatment can be a hamstring lengthening plus or minus a posterior capsulotomy, and this is indicated when there's greater than 20 degrees of knee flexion contracture. A supracondylar extension osteotomy is another potential treatment for a flexion contracture, and this is indicated in older patients and those who have failed soft tissue procedures. An extension contracture is less common than flexion contractures. The treatment is serial casting, and this is indicated for an extension contracture limiting ambulation or sitting. As far as the technique for serial casting, the goal is to reach 90 degrees of flexion. A tibial rotational deformity or torsion is another potential knee disorder that you see in myelodysplasia, and the treatment can be observation and orthotics or a distal tibial derotational osteotomy. Observation and orthotics is indicated in children less than 5 years old, and distal tibial derotational osteotomy is indicated in children older than 5 years old. Foot and ankle deformities in the setting of myelodysplasia is very common, as there is a 60 to 90% incidence due to the high incidence of lower nerve root involvement. Now, let's go over myelodysplasia foot deformities by level. L1 and L2 defects have an equinovarus foot deformity, and the proper orthosis is an HKFO, or a hip-knee-ankle-foot orthosis. An L3 defect also manifests with an equinovarus foot deformity, and the proper orthosis is a CAFO, or a knee-ankle-foot orthosis. An L4 defect manifests as a cavovarus foot deformity, and the proper orthosis is an ankle foot orthosis, otherwise known as an AFO. An L5 defect corresponds to a calcaneovalgus foot deformity, and the proper orthosis is also an AFO. An S1 defect has mild foot deformity, and the proper orthosis is just regular shoes. Club feet or talipes aquinovarus has a 30% incidence with myelodysplasia and is the most common foot deformity. It is very rigid, and there is an insensate foot, which is different from idiopathic club feet. Treatment can be serial casting, which is the initial treatment of choice. However, there is a high complication rate with serial casting. A posteromedial lateral release is indicated when there is failure of serial casting. And as far as the technique, perform a posteromedial lateral release when the child is 12 to 18 months old. A foot dorsiflexion deformity is seen with an L5 or sacral level patients and this occurs due to an unopposed anterior tibialis, which causes a dorsiflexion deformity. Treatment of a foot dorsiflexion deformity is a posterior transfer of the anterior tibial tendon, and this is indicated when there's an inability to achieve a neutral foot with bracing. Another potential foot deformity in the setting of a myelodysplasia is a vertical talus. 
as far as the prognosis of myelodysplasia, survival and neurologic impairment depend on the level of the spinal segment involved. Untreated infants have a mortality rate of 90 to 100 percent. With respect to the ability to ambulate, L3 or above are mostly confined to a wheelchair. L5 level patients have a good prognosis for independent ambulation. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, A four-year-old girl with an L3 myelomeningocele presents for routine follow-up. Pelvic radiographs reveal a complete dislocation of the left hip with a well-formed acetabulum and a normal right hip. Her gait is symmetric with the use of a walker and a brace. Which of the treatment options should be offered to the patient at this time? And the choices are 1. Right-sided femoral shortening osteotomy. 2. Continued observation and routine follow-up. 3. Left greater trochanteric advancement. 4. Left-sided pelvic osteotomy. And 5. Open reduction of the left hip. The correct answer to this question is 2. Continued observation and routine follow-up. So hip dislocation in children with myelomeningocele may either be teratological or paralytic. Paralytic dislocation of the hip occurs because of the paralysis of the hip abductors and extensors with unopposed pull of the hip flexors and adductors. Surgical reduction of hips in patients with spina bifida is associated with a high failure rate and therefore treatment indications are controversial. Reduction for patients with L4 level is most controversial and may be considered if unilateral. Dislocated hips in patients with L3 level and above are typically left alone. These indications may vary from center to center. Gabrielli et al. evaluated 20 patients divided into two groups with a diagnosis of low lumbar myelomeningocele using 3D gait analysis. All patients were community ambulators with a unilateral hip dislocation and no scoliosis. Gait symmetry corresponded to the absence of hip contractures or bilateral symmetrical hip contractures and had no relation to the presence of hip dislocation. The authors concluded that in patients with a symmetric gait, reduction of the hip is unnecessary. Moving on to the next question, the addition of which of the following food supplements may lead to a decrease in neural tube defects? And the choices are 1, vitamin D125, 2, vitamin B12, 3, niacin, 4, folic acid, and 5, thiamine. The correct answer to this question is 4, folic acid. The use of folic acid in developed countries has led to a decrease in neural tube defects. The incidence of neural tube defects is increased in third world countries. Moving on to the next question. What is the most important predictor of functional outcome in patients with myelomeningocele? And the choices are 1. Functional motor level. 2. Sensory level. 3. Dysplasia of the hip. 4. Foot deformity. And 5. Hydrocephalus. The correct answer to this question is 1. Functional motor level. So the functional motor level of the patient is of prime importance in determining prognosis and outcome. Patients with thoracic and upper lumbar motor levels will need wheelchairs or hip-knee-ankle-foot orthoses to ambulate at all. Patients with mid-lumbar motor levels can be household or limited community walkers, whereas children with low lumbar or sacral motor levels are likely to be able to walk in the community. 
Moving on to the next question. An 18-year-old ambulatory female with spina bifida presents with a painful plano valgus left foot. She has failed treatments with orthoses and heel cord stretching regimens. Ankle radiographs demonstrate that the distal tibia is tilted 15 degrees into valgus relative to the long axis. Which of the following treatment options would best correct the deformity? And the choices are 1. Triple arthrodesis of the ankle. 2. Supramalleolar osteotomy. 3. Medial tibial epiphysiodesis. 4. Calcaneal lengthening osteotomy and tendoachilles lengthening. And 5. Midfoot osteotomy combined with plantar release. The correct answer to this question is 2. Supramalleolar osteotomy. So a planovalgus foot deformity in patients with spina bifida may arise from the distal tibia or a foot deformity. In this case, the deformity is occurring through the distal tibia and therefore is best treated with a supramalleolar osteotomy as the patient is skeletally mature. Valgus occurring through the hind foot can be treated with a calcanea lengthening procedure to lengthen the lateral column of the foot and reduce the talonavicular joint. It is usually combined with a tendo-Achilles lengthening and offers further benefit in that it usually corrects the accompanying midfoot abduction deformity. Arthrodesis has been suggested for severe foot deformity, however, is usually avoided because it increases the risk of skin sores and Charcot changes in the foot. In skeletally immature patients with ankle valgus, Stevens et al. performed a medial malleolar epiphysiodesis in 31 children or in 50 feet. They noted an average angular correction of 9.7 degrees. With respect to patient-slash-parent satisfaction, 22 of 31 noted improvement, 8 reported no change, and 1 expressed disappointment. Moving on to the next question. Patients with myelomeningocele have an allergic response or a type 1 hypersensitivity to latex by what cellular mechanisms? And the choices are 1. IgE-directed antibodies, 2. IgM-directed antibodies, 3. IgA-directed antibodies, 4. Overactive complement system, and 5. Hyperactive killer T-cells. The correct answer to this question is 1. IgE-directed antibodies. So as described by the review by Drennan, patients with myelomeningoceles undergoing surgery should undergo special precautions to ensure a latex-free environment. It is thought that patients develop these allergies due to repeated exposure to latex, which is derived from the rubber tree. The allergic or hypersensitivity response is IgE-mediated. Latex allergies in patients without myelomeningocele occur through a type 4 hypersensitivity, which is an allergic contact dermatitis mechanism. Moving on to the next question. A newborn with myelomeningocele has no movement below the waist and has bilateral hips that dislocate with provocative flexion and adduction. What is the best treatment option for the hip instability? And the choices are 1. A pavlic harness with the hips in 90 degrees of flexion and 60 degrees of abduction. 2. A spica cast with the hips in 100 degrees of flexion and 70 degrees of abduction. 3. Observation with range of motion exercises to minimize contractures. 4. Open reduction through an anterior hip approach. And 5. Open reduction through a medial hip approach. The correct answer to this question is 3. Observation with range of motion exercises to minimize contractures. 
So the status of the hips, whether located or dislocated, in children with thoracic-level myelomeningocele has no effect on the functional outcomes of these patients. Management of unstable hips in this population should be limited to treatment of the contractures that may lead to poor limb positioning in either braces or a wheelchair. The use of the pavlic harness and or spica cast is contraindicated because they would promote flexion and abduction contractures. In the past, open reduction either through an anterior or medial approach had been performed with a high incidence of redislocation and other complications with little functional gain for the child. And moving on to the final question, an 18-month-old infant with myelomeningocele and rigid club feet has grade 5 quadriceps and hamstring strength, but no muscles are functioning below the knee. What is the best treatment option for the rigid club feet? And the choices are 1. Triple arthrodesis. 2. Soft tissue releases as necessary. 3. Tendon transfers to balance the feet in a neutral plantigrade position. 4. Physical therapy for range of motion and stretching. And 5. Botulinum injections followed by serial casting. The correct answer to this question is 2. Soft tissue releases as necessary. So this child has the potential to walk and therefore should have all the contracted structures in the feet released as necessary to place the feet in a plantigrade position for fitting of an ankle foot orthosis. Physical therapy, manipulation, and casting may provide some benefit in a newborn with flexible feet but are not effective in an older infant with rigid club feet. Botulinum injections and tendon transfers are of no use because there are no muscles functioning below the knee. Tendon releases are more effective than tendon transfers in children with a myelomeningocele. That's all for this review about myelodysplasia. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.